Okay, so many of you might not know this, some of you do, that uh, in about three weeks, I turn 40. I know, I know, it's really, it's a big deal. Everybody should have a big celebration for my 40th birthday. I'm just kidding. But things that I had wanted to do before I turned 40 was to run a marathon. And um, that is not... I have this bucket list of things and that was one of them and sadly due to the fact that I've never run a half marathon and that I'm like three weeks away from 40 and you combine that with my insatiable love for cinnamon rolls like it's just not gonna happen okay and but the thing I'm trying to say is is that I've trained before and I just can't do it and and I'm just having to come to terms with that with my life because running really is hard I don't know if some of y'all do that but it's maddeningly hard. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever heard of the Brownlee brothers. They're a, a great. They're they're a team that that runs together, and a great. Brownlee is his name, and he's a professional, world class athlete. And he was finishing this brutal uh, marathon in Cozumel once, and in the last half mile or so, everything literally began to fall apart. The conditions that day in Cozumel were, were brutal. And as Brownlee started, you know, stated after the race, uh, the race that he was in the lead for, about the last half uh, kilometer, something began to happen. His vulnerable body began to literally shut down. His, if you watch the video on this, his legs begin to wobble and he begins to totter. And he's like losing, his, his, he's dehydrated, he's, his, his brain is literally not working right. And he begins to just totter and to fade like this. And what you end up seeing is he was in first place and this and, and second place guy just goes by him. And he begins to sort of finish off into the, into the crowd a little bit. And what I find so amazing is he's a world-class athlete. That he trains for this every day of his life. And here he was, he wasn't able to finish the race. Why would I share that story with you? Well, I want you to see a little bit of Johnny Brownlee's vulnerability. I want you to begin to see a little bit of his vulnerability tonight because this has everything to do with what Peter is getting at. How so? Well, Peter, when he's writing this letter to Christians, they are facing or will face suffering. They have a living hope, he tells us, and therefore they now live, as we saw a couple weeks ago, as exiles and strangers in the world, right? We saw that from verse 1 of chapter 1. And because they live now as exiles, they are going to live in such a way where suffering might come to them, that sorrow might come to them, that life is not going to go well for them as it would otherwise if they were not followers of Christ. And so there you begin to see a little bit of the vulnerability, a little bit of the weakness that Peter is writing into. And here's the thing. You don't have to be a first century Christian to begin to understand some of that vulnerability and weakness, do you? We know it too, right? We know this. Think about it. It's not always easy, right, to remember your true identity and your true calling and to live out a life that is faithful to that calling and identity. Let me run through a list of things that I know that students on campus wrestle with, right? It's when you're tempted, right? to speak about her behind her back, things that aren't true. Or you fail to confront the words about her that are spoken about her that aren't true. It's hard to live out our Christian calling. Or 
when you know you can get an A in that class or in that course by fudging the data ever so slightly. Especially when you know the, the, the cheat sheets, the crypt sheets are going around, or there's ways to put on your phone the data that's going to be on the test because you've seen the test before the test is taken. Nobody will know. Nobody will figure it out. It's hard to maintain your Christian calling on the college campus. But there's more too, right? What about when you can go along with the racial slurs, the labels, without speaking up about them? It's hard to live out your calling to be an exile in the world that we inhabit or to give in to watching the computer screen because everybody else on the floor or in the house is doing it. You see what I'm getting at? We could illustrate this all night with a thousand different scenarios. Peter's trying to say this, that we really are vulnerable. And the thing that we're trying to see is, is that God's people have not always lived, as we know, lives consistent with how we know we ought to live. And our sin is our weakness leaving us unable to live as we have been called. And here's what I want you to see tonight, that it's in light of that weakness and vulnerability that our text comes today with a real word of hope, y'all. It's amazing. And it puts on display the amazing help that God has given to us to live as exiles and strangers. And it comes, hear me now, hear me now. It comes in the most staggering of ways. Do you know what it is? Did you catch it when we read it? Each other each other. A community. A community is what Peter is saying will help you to live your lives as exiles and strangers. Some of us already know that, right? We know the help of a friend who speaks to us words of hope and encouragement. And that's what Peter is going to talk about tonight in two distinct ways that I just want to look at. We're going to look at this and in short, I want you to see that Peter is saying that we are communityed ones. Yes, I made that up. Called to live as exiles and strangers together And so Peter is going to show us two things about this new community that God has created. And it's really, really simple. What does it look like? Well, it's very simply we're going to look at the source and the substance. The substance. Actually, McKenna, I'm going to have you turn it off. Sorry. So you guys can see the screen. That'll be good. Just let your eyes adjust and stay awake. If you get bored, stand up or something. So let's start. 22, the idea of the substance. What? this community look like? Let's take a look. The first thing I want you to see about the Christian life is that it's not a solitary one. Did you see it there in verse 22? He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. Boom, there it is. Earnestly from a pure heart. Now this is sort of something that uh, you know, pastors kind of geek out about once they learn the Greek language, which is the original language of the New Testament. You can't see it here really. But one of the things that you need to understand is that when Peter is writing, he's using the word you in the plural sense. Now, we have one word that communicates both singular and ural, I mean, and, and plural. But, but if you're from Texas or if you're from the deep south, we actually have a word for that. It's y'all, right? So if Peter were to speak Texan, he would say, having purified y'all's souls, okay? And, uh, and the idea there is that it's plural. He is saying this, that you were ransomed back up in verse 118. And to that, the reference, this one another, you can't help but see that Peter is showing us that our salvation, here it is, is profoundly communal 
and its nature. In other words, when we are saved as individuals, we are saved into a body of people. And the New Testament calls that the church. The corporate body of God's people is known as the church. And what he is saying is, is that when you are saved, you are put into this body and you now relate to people. You, you don't relate only to God as just me and Jesus anymore. The Apostle Peter and Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2, that when Jesus comes and when He dies, He tears down the dividing wall of hostility, not only between man and God, but between each other. And that therefore, to live faithfully as a Christian is now to do so in a community, in a real community sense. I don't know how many, about, how many, how many of you may have seen the article that just came out. It was published like two days ago in the New York Times, and it's called The Real Campus Scourge or Scourge. The author points out how incredibly shocking the college experience can be, especially for freshmen. This is where all of your ears need to perk up a little bit. Tell me if you can begin to identify this with the college, the college experience. Think about it. This is what the article is saying. You're surrounded by people all the time. You walk into the blue or the library, and there are people who are literally around you everywhere you look. And you couple with the, that with the fact that social media today is, is utterly shifting the way that you think about yourself. Because you can now, through Insta, Facebook, Snapchat, whatever, you are allowed to portray a world of limitless happiness. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I mean, all of us know because we have to throw away the 12 pictures that we don't like for the one, right, that catches in the frame the sort of image of perfection there. And what the writer is actually saying is that, is that when that happens, when that happens the, in the end, is that you have these virtual interactions that are substituted for real ones. Hang with me on this. Virtual interactions substituted for real ones. In other words, we portray that our lives are good and happy. But as soon as the phone goes click, and dies down, reality comes crashing home. And listen to what one of the students writes. He says this. This is one of the student's words in the article. He says, I was going 700 miles away and being dropped in a place of 10,000 people and wasn't going to know anybody. And what followed, he added, was this, a long battle with anxiety and depression. I've known many of you long enough to know that's your story. And I'm sure there's far more of you that that's true of. Why would I tell you that in light of what I'm trying to talk about community? Well, Peter is saying this. When you are a Christian, you are now intimately connected to one another. And frankly, I think that Christians on this campus are faced with a test before them. Will they be the community that Christ has called them to be? And what will that look like? Well, Peter tells us. Did you catch it there in verse 22? He says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What is he saying? What is he saying the goal or the purpose of this salvation is? We are told that our souls have been purified, that we've been set apart for that of a sincere brotherly love. And because of that, Peter says, live in accordance with that purpose. How? By loving from a pure heart. Now, Peter that's just doesn't leave it there out in the ethereal by saying, love each other with a pure heart. What does that look like? 
Well, he writes about it. Turn your eyes to chapter 2. In that first couple of verses there, he says this, Therefore what? Put away, right, all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Why would he say this? Because, friends, these are the very things that actually destroy community. And if you've ever experienced this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And what he's trying to say is, is that when the gospel gets in you, you begin to see it kill these tendencies in your life. And while I won't dwell on it, I have known several college students who are Christians through the years, but they are profoundly lonely. They know people, they seem to have friends at the surface level, but the reason that they are lonely, believe it or not, is not that people don't like them. What is it? It is that they are not committed to taking seriously that these things, malice, envy, deceit, hypocrisy, that they kill relationships. They kill it. And I just want to say, if this is something that you struggle with, it's a big deal. Peter says it's a big deal. And the idea is this, that there's hope for you. Have you ever thought or considered to actually pray that Jesus might make you one who slanders less, who is less hypocritical? Here's the hope. He's writing this to Christians in the church. You see? This is, this is what Christians are doing. And Peter is saying it has no place in the community that God has made. Peter is saying this, that you have been made part of a community, the church, and that this is meant to be marked for the purpose of loving one another. That this is the substance of that new community. And we need this community to live as exiles in the world. I just want to drive this home real quick. Right now, right now, I, I want you to say, I want you to see how this is rubbing up against some of the deep sensibilities that we have as college students. Because we often think that what, it, that, that what it means to be a Christian is just me and Jesus, me and Jesus only. But Peter is saying that is not the case. You've been part, put into a larger community, the body. And now listen, some of you are saying, okay, great, Ryan, given that. But I don't need to be a Christian to experience community. And I'll say this, you're exactly right. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that the community that, the, that Peter is articulating is a richer and deeper one. Why? Because I want to suggest to you this, that gospel-formed community has the resources to produce a deeper and richer community and that this deepness and longness and, rich, and richness is what we all long for. Think about it. What happens when there is normally conflict in a group, right? There's conflict, there's tension, somebody leaves, right? The relationship is severed, it's done with. Somebody ticks you off, you're out of there, right? And what the gospel gives us, though, is actually really, really powerful because it's saying this, that in the midst of real despair and brokenness, that there's actually resources because Jesus has loved me and welcomed me in and has given me real power to be able to love like I have been loved. And therefore, the relationship is not on the line when there is conflict. What I love about this is what one author, Tim Keller, writes. He says this. He's saying basically all of us love to think about, man, I just want, I want authentic, I want real community, I want to have it. But the moment somebody mentions accountability or commitment... What happens? Pew! We're out the door. 
So listen to what he writes. I think it's very telling. He says this, everyone says they want community and friendship, but mention accountability or commitment to people and they run the other way. And what I'm suggesting to you is that Peter is saying that there is a community and that there's friendship and that there's a way of living with other people out there that gives you both friendship and rich accountability. And it's richer and it's deeper because of the gospel. That's what I want you to begin to see tonight. That's the hope that's on offer to you. But the thing I also want you to see is that Peter tells us, as one commentator puts it, he says this, that loving the body is the hallmark of being converted. That communal brotherly love is to be the essence of the new community that Jesus creates. But he's also going to tell us something else. He's not only going to tell us the substance of that community, but also the source of it. In other words, where it comes from. So we've looked at the substance of that community, and now we're looking at the source of that community. And I'll invite you to take a look at verses 23 through 25 there. Did you notice that Peter says this? He says, You have been born again. How you have been born again through the living and abiding word. Do you see that right there in verse 23? Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the abiding word of God. And then he cites from Isaiah, this all flesh is like grass and its glory is like the flower. And then he comes back at the end and he says, and this word is the good news, which is literally, this word is the gospel that was preached to you. What is he saying? He's saying that the word is like this imperishable seed, one that gives rise to imperishable life. Think about it. A lemon seed gives rise to a lemon tree, right? Uh, A corn kernel or seed gives rise to a corn plant or a corn stalk, okay? The picture here is, is that an imperishable seed is going to give rise to imperishable life. And what is that seed that gives imperishable, that gives newness, that gives resurrection-oriented life? It is the gospel. It is the word that has been proclaimed to them. And this is crucial, crucial for us to see. Why? Because Peter is showing us the connection between that imperishable word, the gospel, and a love-expressing community. Hear me on this. He's saying this. The only way and have the sort of community that we just talked about is if it's born out of the gospel itself. That that's the source. That's the source of life for this sort of community that he's talking about up in uh, chapter 1. And that is critical for two reasons. One, I just put it like this. That a love-expressing community can only come from the gospel. That's sort of my first sub-point under this, this heading. Here's what I'm trying to say. The gospel is the only source and foundation of, and real power to love like this. Why? Well, when you begin to see Jesus loving and accepting you at your worst, when you were turned against Him and He caused you to be born again, He chased you down as we just sung about, then you have real power to love fellow exiles. Let me play this out a little bit with a scenario here. Suppose someone comes to you and they tell you, so-and-so has run your name through the mud, okay? So-and-so has run your name through the mud. They have slandered you and your reputation. And if you've ever had your reputation slandered or ruined, 
you know how disheartening and maddening that can be because you lose, you feel like your character is being lost. But listen to what Peter is going to say. Maybe they meant to. Maybe they didn't. The point is this. Your name has now lost status in the eyes of the community, or at least to those who have heard. And likely the relationship between the person who ran your name through the mud and you is marred. So here's the question. How will you respond? One way. Go to that person and pay them back with harsh words, right? That's sometimes what we often do. You chew them out. How dare could you speak of me in that way? I can't believe you would say such and such about me. Or you could respond in kind by saying something about them that wasn't true either. Either way, you're punishing them by shaming them and seeking to hurt them with your words. Another way that we could deal with this is just to avoid the conflict altogether. Some of us in the room are conflict avoiders, right? We lift up the rug and just sweep under there and say, now it's all better. But you know what? That's not loving either. Because it's not loving and kind to let somebody continue to sin against you. And so we deal with things with love and mercy, love and grace. And what Peter is saying is this, that only in the gospel do we have good news that God has done everything to make us right with God and to give us us peace with our fellow man. And you see, when you see Jesus dying on the cross for you, you see simultaneously Jesus dying for my sins and the sins of my brothers and sisters, and two, God granting me a new and permanent status that frees me from having to be dependent upon how others think of me. Let me just strip this down. The only cure for your people-pleasing for you worrying about what other people think about you and how that drives your life is to see that you already have in the gospel the very smile of God. That the only opinion in the universe that really matters, you have Him looking at you in the highest esteem. And then you begin to say, if he or she doesn't think well about me, I can't do anything about it but I have the smile of heaven shining down on me. And that begins to reorient me in the way that I think about how other people think about me. It gives me compassion to be able to extend to others. And it gives me courage as well to be able to face people in the midst of conflict. And here's what he's trying to say, is that only the gospel can give you that. Why is that so important? Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer the great German theologian around the Second World War said, he says this, those, those who love their dream of Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. I'm going to pack that. I'm going to unpack it. What's Bonhoeffer saying? He's saying there's people out there who are like, man, feel authentic community with people. Like, that's what I want. I just want to have like intimacy and stuff. And so I'm going to go out and I'm going to go pursue that with other people. And what Bonhoeffer is saying is says, when you make community the source for trying to have community, you kill community. Because community must be nourished and buttressed by something greater, the gospel. And so what he ends up saying is, he says that those that actually go out and love others, 
create community wherever they go. Now that is beautiful, y'all. And what he is saying, what Peter is saying, is that this is how we do it. That loving community, if you love community more than the community that God places you around, you'll never get what you want. So ready, plug. Here we go, plug. Get involved with the community group. Find some small group. Can I beg of you for, like, that you would try something? That you might enter into a community of people that you don't know. That you don't know. And that God might do something in that midst of people that you don't know that might surprise you after four years, after three years, after one semester. That He would put you and her or he and you together in a way that utterly shocks you about what God would do. Look at the first band of disciples. You have right-leading conservatives, left-leading progressives. They come together. They change the world. You have richer upper class. You have people who can't stand the government. They're ready to overthrow it. They all come together and they turn the world upside down. And they find rich and deep community and it changes them so much so they go to their graves for it. That's what Jesus can do. And do you believe that He might do that in your midst while you were on this campus? I don't care if it's not with RUF. Do you have a small... You, you will die if you do not have community. You cannot do the Christian life alone. Peter is saying that over and over again. And secondly, my sort of second sub-point is this, that the gospel inevitably produces this sort of love-expressing community. Peter wants you to see this. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. He says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. Two things. Pure spiritual milk is not the same milk that we see in other parts of the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter one, I mean, chapter 3, in, in the book of Hebrews, I'm losing my reference right now. But this is not the same... Peter is not using the word milk in those same ways. When he talks about craving pure spiritual milk, he's talking about the totality of what God has done for us. And he's saying, like a baby craves food, I want you to crave that. For what purpose? Look at chapter 2, verse 2. That you might grow up. That you might grow up. That you would mature. So for every Christian in this room... Peter's hope for you is that you would not stay infantile. That you would not stay childish. You might stay childlike, but you might st- that you would not stay childish and that you would grow, that you would mature. That is his hope for all of us. And I want to say it cannot happen by yourself. And the way that you grow, the way that you grow is by placing yourself into community with other Christians and finding this. And we want to be a place that offers that up. Listen, I know that here's, here's a caveat. Some of you say, yeah, Ryan, I've tried that before. And all it got me was burned. Why would I do it again? I would just say this. Whatever your experience was, if that was, if that was legitimate and true, I get it. I've been burned before too. I really have. And it's really sad. And Jesus is sad with you. He really is. It aches Him to know that people can be hurt in His name. 
But I also want to say that there's hope for you and that there's power in the gospel to keep pressing in to deeper and to richer and richer community. You might say after hearing all this, who in the world can live like this? That is so hard. It seems impossible. And the point is, yes, it absolutely is. The point is, is that the call is so high. Only the good news coming home in our hearts can ever power it. And it is a call so certain, this call to community, that anywhere the gospel has taken root in this community, you will begin to see it. I need to land the plane to sort of highlight where we get this power from. And I mentioned earlier that that runner, Johnny, remember I was telling you about him? That he wasn't able to finish the race that day. And I should complete my thought. He wasn't able to finish the race that day by himself. Though he did lose his first place finish, he would still take second. You see, not because of his efforts though. With about a half a K left, the runner in third place ran up behind him, put his arm around him, and began to run with Johnny the last half K, step in step. And right when he got to the finish line, this other runner took Johnny's arm off around his neck and let him fall across the finish line before he stepped across. You see, that runner could have kept on going, taken second place, and left Johnny in his wake. But you know why he didn't? Because that runner was his brother. That runner was his brother. In fact, it was his older brother. And what I want you to see is that earlier, <laughs> earlier in another race, the roles were actually reversed, where the older brother was, was struggling, and there's video. Do you know who runs right by him? His younger brother. Here's what I want you to see. Do you know in the gospel you have something better? You have something better. That Jesus is the one when you just can't do it. When you can't do it. Who runs up beside you and carries you home. The book of Hebrews says this, that He's not afraid and He's not ashamed to call you brothers because He cares for you in the midst of your vulnerability, in the midst of your weakness, and at great expense to himself, he makes sure that you get to the finish line. The author of Hebrews will actually say this, that he is the author and the finisher, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And that it's his job to get you home. Because you're too weak to do it. And that's the beauty of the Gospel. That Jesus comes to the helpless and to the hopeless, and to the vulnerable, and out of His great love for you, by Him giving His life for you on the cross, get rival at home, y'all. That is the great hope and the great promise of the Gospel. That is why Peter will say over and over again, set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed to you at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And some of y'all right now need to hear this because you feel like quitting. And I just want to say, Quit all you want. Jesus will be there. He will pick your butt up and He will carry you home. He is faithful to the end. That's what this text is telling us. He will hold you. and He will bring you home. Let's pray.